You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents Network of Podcasts. Thank you for joining us for part two of the Jane Doe January Trilogy. Jane Doe January is a memoir of the cold case prosecution of a serial rapist written by one of his victims. Emily Winslow was raped by a stranger when she was a drama student in Pittsburgh in 1992. Then, in 2013, more than 20 years later, DNA analysis prompted the identification and arrest of Arthur Fryer for the crime. By then, Emily had moved to England, where she was a happily married mother of two, writing detective novels set in her new home in Cambridge. In Jane Doe January, she tells the true story of the crime and prosecution in her own life. Now, Emily will set the scene for an excerpt from the audiobook edition of Jane Doe January. In January 2014, 22 years after I was raped by a stranger as a student in Pittsburgh in 1992, I returned to Pittsburgh to testify in the preliminary hearing against the man. This was just the beginning of the legal process in which I had become entwined. It was a hearing to establish that the prosecution had enough evidence to be allowed to schedule a full trial. I deliberately traveled alone while my husband stayed behind in England to look after our sons. There were enough people for me to deal with in Pittsburgh that I didn't feel up to bringing anyone with me. Among the people waiting for me in Pittsburgh were three detectives. The first was Bill Valenta, the original detective from my case. He had questioned me in the hospital the night that it happened in 1992. He hadn't been my detective for long. The case petered out quickly, and he transferred to another department anyway. I hadn't spoken to him in the decades since, but I remembered that he had been kind to me. So when the arrest happened in 2013, I wanted to tell him about it. I discovered that he had become an assistant dean at the University of Pittsburgh, We emailed back and forth, sending each other pictures of our families and discussing the night of the rape from our different points of view. We also discussed the current state of the case. I was frustrated by the lack of information from the current sex crimes detectives. Before Bill's retirement from the police, he'd risen all the way to commander, and he still had some influence. He helped persuade the new detectives to be more open with me, but it still didn't feel open enough. Dan Honan was the current detective on my case, and April Campbell was the other victim's detective. She was also sex crimes cold case specialist, and so, when nudged by Bill, she was the one who finally answered my questions about the legal details involved and what was likely ahead. Dan was courteous, but generally aloof. They worked erratic hours, so I never knew when would be a good time to phone. I felt frustrated. I hoped that maybe meeting them in person would make things better. At the preliminary hearing, I was also going to get to meet the other victim for the first time. I didn't even know her name. I was going to get to meet my prosecutor. I hadn't been told his name either. And I was going to see Arthur Fryer, the man whose DNA had identified him as my attacker. I had been assured by Detective Honan that he would be shackled, and I knew he would be old now. We were all older me now in my forties and Bill in his fifties, but Fryer had hit retirement age in his sixties. I'd only ever been near him one night in my life when he forced himself into my apartment, and now twenty-two years later, I was about to be in the same room with him again. My story is already in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette the day I arrive. I'm not named, 
only referred to as a woman from the United Kingdom. The hotel distracts me with little luxuries. I've come a day early in case of weather delaying the flights, and I stay inside, viewing the snow-covered streets outside only through windows. I feel swaddled by the building and safe. I already call Valenta Bill. I decide that I'll address Detectives Campbell and Honan as April and Dan. I want to be peers here. Really, though, I don't get to talk to them much at all. They haven't offered their cell phone numbers or checked to see if my plane got in as expected. Bill is indignant over their apparent lack of care. Bill is different from April and Dan. He's older, though not old, retired from the job, not swamped with other just as or more than upsetting cases. The real difference, though, is that he was there when it happened. Not in the apartment, of course, but it is bigger than just the crime itself. It includes the hospital and the investigation and finishing college and having flashbacks. Bill was with me that night when I was still in shock, when I was still bleeding, and the case was his. April and Dan care about my case in a generic human way and in an efficient police way, but it can't be personal for them. It's personal for Bill. I almost wonder as much about how I'll react seeing him as I do about how I'll react seeing Arthur Fryer. All of the other people who were there then were also in my life before and after. The friends who went through it with me went through other things with me too, good things or things that were about them, not me. I can see them and there's lots to remember. It is only one of them. With Bill, it is all there is. He meets me in the hotel lobby the night before the hearing with his wife, Jane. They find me instantly because of my pink coat. I've braced myself for the greeting, not sure how to touch. In Cambridge, there would be European cheek kisses, which even after eight years still make me uncomfortable. I'm happier with simple hugs, but I've had to practice not hugging and greeting since moving to England, especially with university people. It's just not done. So when Bill reaches for a hug, I reflexively balk out of English habit. He smoothly switches to a handshake. He's made us reservations at a nearby restaurant with attentive waitstaff and a coat check. Despite the fancy surroundings, the conversation is informal and profoundly American in a way that I recognize deeply and have missed. We three talk about our kids and our jobs and lightly swear in passing, not rudely, just simply, words like bullshit. I sip from Bill's martini, falling back into the casual familiarity I grew up with. He banters with the waiter. The accents. Not strong Pittsburghese, but a generic East Coastishness. I feel at home. The conversation alternates between chit-chat and case talk. He's upset about the new detectives being so aloof to me and upset with himself over not having been available to me these 22 years.
But it's understandable. He left the sex assault unit just months after my case, switching to internal affairs because it was day work only and he was starting college at night. He eventually moved to vice, then became a commander before retiring from police work for a new career in academic administration. April remembers him from her early police years as the boss. She and Dan seem to find it baffling that Bill's so kind to me, that he cares after all these years. Dan had even told Bill that he was surprised at the thoroughness of Bill's case notes. Bill rolls his eyes recollecting that, and wonders if he could help change things over there, make things better. He says wistfully, maybe. Jane, glad to be past the life stage of being a cop's wife, says, no, Bill, we've talked about this. She's a newly promoted vice president at Pittsburgh Plate Glass, and they both have to travel a lot, taking turns to ensure someone will always be home. They need a controllable schedule for the kids' sakes. That's when we switch to telling funny stories about times we were left at home by our traveling parents and what we got away with. When my parents left me for a couple weeks at 17, I adopted a kitten. Bill was naughtier, throwing crazy parties while his parents were gone. He steam-cleaned the house before they got home, to the delight of his doting Italian mom, and the justified suspicion of his cop, dad. His wife says to me, right in the middle of other things, I want you to know that I'm okay with this. She means that she doesn't mind Bill caring about me and helping me. I'm glad that she doesn't mind, because I need him tomorrow. Every time he's said that he can be with me for this part or for that, I've looked down at my lap and said, yes, please or good, or once, I need you to stay for the whole time. I need you to not leave. I think he feels that need, too. When he talked about how some cases stay with you, his eyes had gotten shiny. When we get our coats, while we wind scarves around our necks and tug on gloves for the brief dash across the street back to the hotel, I thank him again for prioritizing the hearing over a university event that he's supposed to attend at the same time. I'm just relieved that the hearing didn't fall a few weeks later when he'll be representing the university in Prague and China. He says without hesitation, I would have changed the trip if it did. I wake up early because of the time difference, and find a marathon of Law & Order reruns on the hotel room TV. The pattern of each episode is familiar and comforting as it hums in the background, driving toward a resolution every hour. It's what I would watch anyway, even if we weren't going to court. But being headed to court makes watching it seem funny. I drink an entire pot of room service decaf, I get my shoes shined. I have till noon, when Bill and I will walk to court together through the blade-cold winter air. England doesn't typically get to these temperatures, and the chill feels like childhood to me. The hearing is not in the historic courthouse near the hotel. 
It's a few blocks away in the municipal court, a run-down building awkwardly shaped to look like a police badge from above. Bill and I have been instructed to meet the other detectives in front of the broken elevators. They're easy to find once we're through the oversensitive metal detector and past the chipper, already bored security lady. There are no working elevators to trick us. Everyone knows Bill. He's greeted by passing uniformed cops, security, and press. Newspaper journalists are there and TV cameras. They're only allowed to film my feet. I'm glad for the whim that had led me to use the hotel's shoe polishing service. The unpleasant building is pretty much just rooms off a single long hallway, a corridor that's quickly filled by the line for today's hearings. Everyone is scheduled for a 12.30 start and will just wait their turn. Accusers, accused, and witnesses for lesser cases all stand together in that line. For us, a more sensitive case, Fryer is in a holding pen. Dan Honan and April Campbell arrive, and we go upstairs to meet the assistant district attorney, ADA, from the Crimes Against Persons Unit, shortened in conversation to Crimes Persons, who will be prosecuting our case. His name is Kevin. I'm told that this case was fought over in the DA's office. Everyone wanted it. On our way up the stairs, the detectives tell me that Georgia is already here. I figure out that they mean the other victim from November the same year as me. It's the first time I've heard her name. She's with her husband and two women. We've each been assigned an advocate from Pittsburgh Action Against Rape. Georgia has the first prep session with the prosecutor, so Bill, Dan, my advocate, and I continue to hang out in the hallway. Dan's brought my file for me to see at my request. I blip over all the paperwork from this year to get to the real stuff, the notes from that night pages and pages in Bill's neat handwriting, and then pages and pages in single-spaced typing. I mutter, holy crap, holy crap, over and over. There's a lot I haven't bothered to remember. There's nothing that contradicts what I do recall. It's just stuff that's news to me. Apparently, I'd had a conversation with Fryer before he went upstairs and waited in the stairway next to my door. Bill had transcribed my recounting of it like a play. I feel faint and have to sit. Dan gets me water. I don't cry once the entire day, but my hands shake. Our turn comes with Kevin, the ADA. We're led into a back office with a pin-the-tail-on-the-donkey game taped to the door. The goal of the hearing, it's explained to me, is not to prove Fryer's guilt, but simply to demonstrate that there's a reasonable case for it, to persuade the judge to bind over the case for an actual trial later. We go over procedure and review my testimony. I'm worried about vocabulary. I have to be very specific in my descriptions to clearly match the charges. My concern is what words to use. 
I feel ridiculous using clinical terms and rude using slang terms. We brainstorm phrasings, me and these three men I barely know. As we exit, Bill holds the door for the advocate to go out first. I follow her, then hang back, noticing that Bill has waited in the office to listen to something Kevin is saying. I wait, too. For the entire day, I don't let myself get more than three feet away from Bill except to go to the bathroom. When he's in front of me, I follow closely. When he's behind me, my head swivels back over and over to make sure he's still there. More hallway. I bore my victim advocate with pictures of my kids. She's a good sport about it. While she and I flip through images on my iPad, Bill chats with Dan. Shop talk, I suppose. I don't listen, but I keep Bill in the corner of my eye. He's just a foot or two in front of me, leaning on the railing that surrounds the opening overlooking the line for court below. Sometimes he shifts position, and my eyes flick up, making sure he doesn't go anywhere. Once, he walks a couple yards away to the men's room, and I almost panic. Then I see that he's left his coat on the rail, and I know he's coming back. Georgia and I tell how I met my husband's stories, and it's all very social, very chatty. She observes what we have in common, that we were both performers then, that we both subsequently had sons. I point out that we lived so close. She says that we have him in common, and I, caught up in the camaraderie, joke that he has great taste. Everyone laughs then looks around a little nervously. She and I are grenades of emotion with loose pins. They don't know when we're going to go off. I feel faint again. Bill gets me vending machine crackers and a sports drink. Dan goes to the bathroom. Dan's wife has apparently been waiting downstairs for just this opportunity. She's suddenly up here introducing herself, trying to tell the victims from the advocates, distributing hugs and hellos. She'd told Dan that she wanted to come today, and he'd said no. But she had to, she explains to me. She had to see me. She says that this case has gotten to him, that it means the world to him that the lab came through, that the extradition finally happened, and that I've come all this way. I'm amazed. He'd never shown those feelings to me. She and I hug three times by the time Dan comes out of the bathroom. He sees her and freezes. I call out, we've already hugged three times. She's great. She gazes proudly at him and tells us all that he got a new suit for this. Dan looks down, embarrassed. She follows his eyes and says, he got those cuffs hemmed just yesterday. She tells me that she had English tea and an English muffin for breakfast in honor of me. Thank you for joining us for episode two of the Jane Doe January Trilogy. Episode three will be available next week. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. 
The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts. All brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.